Hello, Food Chain. This is Sharon Chitone, and I'm a food tech junkie and an innovation nerd who loves a good story. This podcast combines all of my favorite vices into a weekly deep dive about the problems our food system faces and the visionary people working on solutions. To inaugurate the Food Tech Junkies series, I've asked on as our guest, Big Idea Ventures founder, Andrew Ive. When I met Andrew for the first time back at FoodX, his desire to help entrepreneurs was tangible and so was his vision for BAV. With tenacity and drive, he created a hybrid venture firm with the purpose of solving the world's biggest challenges and support the world's best entrepreneurs. His first fund and accelerator invests in plant-based foods and ingredients to impact climate change, animal welfare, and personal health. His second looks at sustainability and focus on reducing CO2, plastics, waste, water, and now at his third, he'll focus on the next generation of farmers. I hope you'll be as excited as I am for this conversation. Hey, Andrew, how are you? Uh, I'm great. Love, love being part of this podcast. And, and, and also love chatting to Edible Planet. Thank you so much. All right, let's just jump in the questions. Um, as an old timer in the space and as one of the first investors to dedicate a fund to alternative protein, why and how do you think the situation has evolved the way that it has? Uh, and aside from the financial rewards, uh, why do you think that so many people uh, took the issue of the future of our protein supply at heart? That's a, that's a great question. It's also an enormous question. Yes. Um, <laughs> uh, so I think the first thing that, that's probably quite important uh, to sort of understand is that this is a, a kind of consumer driven um, phenomenon uh, in, in the sense that consumers are driving the change. This is not being created by uh, investors or, uh, you know, marketers or, or sort of business people thinking, hey, why don't we focus on proteins now? Uh, it's not that uh, this is this is kind of consumers saying, um, you know, we are going to, based on the amount of money we're prepared to spend, uh, we're going to be focusing on, uh, we, we want to focus our dollars on more sort of sustainable, um, sustainable food sources uh, that's kind of more, uh, less damaging to the planet. We want to be making conscious decisions which uh, have animal welfare more at heart. Um, we, we, you know, we're interested in new types of foods. We're interested in in new t uh, in new in new ways of of delivering the tastes we've we've sort of grown up loving and and having as part of our family lives. You know, we we want to have those same tastes, have those same flavors, those same textures. We're not looking for things to be completely different, but potentially we are looking for foods that are more sustainable, um, that are less harming to the planet, that contribute less to you know, climate change, global warming. Um, so, so, so that's kind of one of the key drivers. Consumers are sort of driving uh, the food, the food corporations uh, to start thinking differently about the foods they bring to market. Um, to think, uh, they're asking the food companies to think more sustainably in terms of how they're sourcing uh, their ingredients, uh, and um, you know. When you when those food corporates aren't responsive, uh, the 
usual response for people who sort of are wanting a change is they either demand the change by you know by by selecting the companies that they want to support with their dollars or their euros or whatever currency they have or um, they get so hacked off and so sort of frustrated that they decide to do something about it and get in there and start companies of their own and a lot of the a lot of the entrepreneurs that we get involved with are are people just like that they've had enough of the food system as it currently is they want a food system that's more sustainable they want products of a certain kind uh, whether that's animal free products or plant based products or whatever it might be and if they can't get it, they'll blooming well go and make it themselves and, and try and figure out how to do it and then see if there are other people like them who care enough uh, uh, to, be con- to be their first customers, their first you know, consumers of those products. So this is a, this is a, um, a consumer-driven transformation and it's, it's shaking things up. Uh, it's shaking things up in the food industry um, you know, they can't, the, the large food corporations can't w- sit on their laurels and produce products like they did in the 50s and 60s and 70s and assume that they're just going to continue to be the biggest percentage of the market and be able to crank out the profits that they've done in the past. Um, right. consumers, are, consumers are demanding more. Absolutely. Um, but so there's been, uh, I think, a tremendous push, right? Uh, as we see a lot of even new funds um, popping up that look at alternative protein and a lot of venture capital money. Um, and so you, it's such a phenomenon every day about money uh, investments. Uh, just where was it like 10 days ago, the highest uh, seed investment um, of $30 million. Uh, so w- with all of this that is happening, um, what kind of problems do you envision uh, from a supply chain level uh, or any other issues, potential issues on the horizon in regards to what is happening today? Yeah. Uh, so if this was an incremental change, if this was just a slight shift in in how things are going to be from the past, then um, you wouldn't see all these sort of big numbers happening from an investment perspective. You wouldn't see these sort of, uh, I mean, you, you have people talking about, is this a bubble? Yeah. You know, is this kind of, are these sort of financial transactions, these numbers, these sort of, uh, uh, investments, etc. Are they are they a bubble? Um, and it would be a bubble if there was nothing underlying the change. The change is happening, and and I think what what we're seeing is the fact that this is not just a slight or an incremental or a small change in the food industry. This is a transformative shift. This is this is um, a, quite a significant uh, change. Um, a change I haven't seen in any, well, in, in the food industry, I don't think change like this um, uh, in the last, let's say, 100 years. You know, uh, Pepsi coming up with a new uh, product or 
you know, the creation of Snapple or, you know, whatever uh, brand you're thinking about, they're generally brand extensions. They're just sort of one more product that look and uh, are similar to all the rest. This is people around the world, entrepreneurs around the world, innovators around the world, thinking about new ways, new ingredients, new things, uh, new products, um, ways of recreating almost every single product in the grocery store to the point where you can walk down every aisle in the grocery store. And if it's got an animal as a core ingredient or as a sub ingredient, it's reimaginable and being reimagined by by you know entrepreneurs and innovators and supported by the large food food companies like Bueller and Givadan, uh, Meiji and others. So it's it's a transformative kind of tectonic shift that's going on in the food industry that hasn't happened in a hundred years. What that means is, um, you know, we've we we from a food system perspective, we've been relying on two or three key crops. Yes. I think there's some data point that the GFI five. have mentioned on a number of yeah, uh, it, it's something like five crops are 80, yeah. 80 or ninety percent of of our entire consumption yep. from a crop perspective. Um, one thing to take into consideration is those crops um, are in enormous quantities, but um, if we rely on those crops for all of the new food production and the new innovation and so on, soy, pea. Uh, wheat, etc. If we rely on those crops for all of the new food innovation that's happening right now, um, a food security is not probably very very secure at all because we're relying very on on a very small number of crops. But also, they can't change the supply very quickly because it's a crop. It's an annual, you know, it's an annual process of develop determining the amount that's produced, etc. Sure. So so as we get companies like Impossible and Beyond and others whose individual demand for these pure ingredients are you know one year more than one year's supply um it, it puts an incredible stress on the system just in terms of of availability of input right the the, yes. the ingredient that goes in at the in, at the front end on top of that we are used to producing food in a certain way protein has traditionally been animal-based or seafood based um, that means putting animals in large factories uh, type facilities, processing them to use a, a kind of a animal protein industry term, processing them in significant numbers on a daily basis, etc. Um, if we start looking at new ways of, produce, uh, of, fi- uh, of producing and um, consuming plant-based protein, then we don't currently have the manufacturing capacity as a as an industry to provide to produce that kind of quantity of plant-based products because we've never we've never done it that way before yes right absolutely so what that, so what that so, so what that means is um you you you've got consumers saying give us more protein choices not just animal but plant-based and and mycelium based etc um we want to buy it well okay great so, but the system as it's currently being constructed over the last, you know, 10, 20, 30 years hasn't produced that quantity of plant-based um, or mycelium-based or, you know, fermentation-based products, et cetera, hasn't, hasn't been there and hasn't produced that quantity, which means we now need to go back and say, okay, how are we going to go, how are we going to produce X number of, you know, 
X number of tons of plant-based product, it, we're going to have to set up new production facilities in yes. strategic places around the world. We're going to have to think about alternative ingredient sources. Ideally, we're looking at ingredient, ingredient sources which are, are, are sort of local and relevant to the, to the markets that we're producing, you know, plant-based and uh, fermentation-based protein for. So in other words, we're not just saying, okay, we're going to now create as an industry another 10, 15, 20 um, plant-based production facilities. We're also going to diversify the ingredients that we use. And we can because we're now, you know, we're plant-based gives us that ability. We don't, you know, we can now start looking at chickpeas and we can start looking at other other key ingredients uh, that could be very prevalent in domestic markets. India has you know, a, a whole range of different um, ingredients that are beyond soy, pea, wheat, etc. Yes. Um, as, just as an example. And I think another issue, um, correct me if I'm wrong, it's not only the expense to develop these products, uh, also because there are so many uh, of these coming out, we also need to think about the supply chain and um, as well as looking at sourcing, uh, i.e. crops and like crop rotations versus monoculture, because that will possibly, um, if, if you don't look at that, it will possibly not help in the long run. So we should look at all of this in a holistic manner. I'd, I'd like to hear your thoughts about that. Yeah, so if, if you're talking long run, uh, from a protein perspective, I'm thinking that cell-based is is likely to be one of the more dominant technologies rather than, so, so sorry, taking a step back, I totally agree that um, looking at kind of alternative crop sources, uh, more domestic, more, more, more sort of uh, crops that are more relevant to key markets, uh, et cetera, is certainly the, the way we ought to be thinking about it. Um, I don't think we should just be planting more soy or planting more wheat. I think we can, we've got a, a few things going on here that really help us. One is we've got an enormous um, tsunami of entrepreneurs around the world who are thinking of new ways of doing things, using new ingredients, using, using new technologies. Um, and there's a kind of an ecosystem being created in key places around, around the world. Um, of, of, of these kind of uh, uh, young companies collaborating, working together, finding great mentors, et cetera. And that's something Big Idea Ventures is, is really focused on building. You know, we're building these ecosystems and hubs in Singapore, New York, Paris, and other, uh, uh, ideally Italy and other places. Um, so we've got these entrepreneurs coming up with new ways of doing things, being prepared to try new ingredients and so on. Um, the large food corporates who own currently channels of distribution and scale production and the ability to get new products to market uh, because of you know relationships with retail, food service, and so on, at least the smart ones, are recognizing the engine of innovation that's being created in in you know uh, in in these you know in Italy, in in US, in in Asia, and etc. And they're tapping into those entrepreneurs and partnering with them. And so the entrepreneurs and the innovators are bringing that kind of new way of doing things, a new way of looking at different ingredients and so on. And if you're and they're partnering with large food corporates who are saying, OK, let's bring this, these great things to market. And those large corporates are helping them improve the products, 
finalize the products and bring those products to market using their their production facilities often and their and their distribution facilities um, all in response to what consumers are wanting mm-hmm. right so there's this sort of amazing flywheel that's going on right now in key pl- in key hubs around the world where entrepreneurs are coming together with large food culprits and they're bringing the best of both worlds together which is which is amazing but if you're talking long-term protein i do think that cell-based and and i'm sure there'll be people that will argue with me about this but i do think cell-based is one of the directions we will travel in uh, because it's it's not requiring those crop inputs Um, so from a food security perspective um, a country that has is sort of doubling down on the cell-based space and the technology that's coming through there will allow them to grow uh, their protein sources without needing to put in soy, wheat, you know, any of the other crops. It's basically taking cells and growing them. Um, cells which at a biological level are identical to the cells that we currently grow on the backs of skeletons and animals. So, you, you know, the inputs are actually quite small. You, you mm-hmm. need, you know, the cells, you need the cell lines, you need scaffold, uh, you need what's called scaffolding. Um, you need bioreactors often, uh, the, although there are other ways of doing it as well, but you need bioreactors and you need space. And that space can be urban. It doesn't need to be agriculture. It can be, you know, in, in, in an empty warehouse today that's currently not productive. You can use that space to grow protein. Um, and you don't need those crop inputs. So long term, I think over and by long term, I mean sort of 10, 15 years. Mm-hmm. Um, I think cell, cell based is going to be quite an important technology for us, certainly, certainly in Asia uh, and increasingly in the US and um, Europe. Yeah, indeed. I mean, we um, in Singapore, they are already uh, having it. Um, the US is uh, not shy from approving regulations europe will be i think the last one to um to get there uh relatively harder uh especially uh on the biotech side i think um, it can be very slow (laughs) unfortunately um just a quick question, like, because we were talking about this. So from, yes, from, you know, the perfecting taste and texture and even, you know, looking at clean meat, where do you think will be this time next year? Hopefully without COVID. (laughs) 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 That's, that's a big one. Uh, I thought we were done with it in the US, but, uh, you know, we're starting to see some upticks again, Delta variant gone. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, in 12 months, I'm just sort of keeping my fingers crossed that COVID is completely, uh, you know, eradicated and we're getting back to some degree of, of some degree of normal. Um, I've been actually quite, impressed with the resiliency of our species and I don't mean in terms of survival because it hasn't ever quite been that yet but you know we've all managed to keep everything going the supply chain the production um, and it's obviously through from a lot of sacrifice and and courage of a lot of a lot of people throughout the food industry have 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 been just amazing uh, to kind of keep everything going but yeah so in 12 months time 
uh, COVID, I hope, is firmly in the rear view. Um, from an innovation perspective, so, so interestingly, two years ago, three years ago, uh, plant-based was sort of, uh, yeah, and we would, you know, we've been getting, let's say, uh, three to 400 companies applying for investment to us every six months uh, mm -hmm. on average. Uh, and that's sort of, that number sort of growing. Uh, two to three years ago, we were seeing a predominance of plant-based. Mm -hmm. And um, not surprising because people were sort of uh, focusing in on, on beyond success uh, uh, and other, other kind of traction in the marketplace and thinking, okay, now's the time. I've been thinking about starting a company. I've been thinking about coming up with a new product for some time. Now's the time. And so we saw a, a, you know, a significant number of companies starting up in the plant-based space. Um, about a year or so ago, um, that percentage didn't necessarily go down, but we started seeing uh, a quite a lot more cell-based companies uh, uh, sort of popping up. Um, whether it's in terms of the cell lines, i.e. the type of, of uh, protein that was being produced. So we started seeing not just beef uh, or, or, or chicken, but we started seeing a whole range of companies in the seafood side um, popping up. Uh, we started seeing companies dealing with avian, so turkey and all sorts of other things. So cell lines expanded, companies using, uh, looking at different uh, types of, of animals, fish, uh, uh, et cetera, uh, uh, birds, et cetera. Um, we also st started seeing companies on the cell-based side in the kind of tools. So the picks and shovels to use the kind of terminology you think about when, when you think about gold prospecting, you know, there are, there are companies who in the cell-based side were focusing on the sort of challenges or bottlenecks or the, the kind of technology aspects that were stopping cell-based being a commercially viable overall technology and some of those bottlenecks include uh, growth factor so tradi traditionally cell bases use fetal bovine serum or fbs to grow cells expensive and also not collected in a humane way yeah um, there have been companies who have focused specifically on the growth factor finding plant-based or non-animal based solutions to growth factor that that will be 50 to 80 times less expensive than fbs which sort of unlocks cell-based as a commercially viable ongoing technology it makes it from a five to ten year horizon to a you know two to three year horizon and we've got companies like biftec in our portfolio and others um, who are trying to solve that or not trying to they are actually solving that that problem, both in terms of from a cost perspective, but also from a you know uh, an animal welfare perspective. So they're they're 100% plant-based um, growth factor. Um, so the, so the kind of tools of of cell uh, uh, of the cell-based space have been a focus from an innovation perspective over the last year or so. I would also I'm also seeing in the last six to 12 months more companies on the fermentation side, mm -hmm. and that's across. That's across dairy in particular. So companies using precision fermentation in in the dairy uh, in the in the dairy space. Um, also, we've got companies producing new ingredients um, using uh, microbial fermentation, whether that's new protein sources to replace soy and wheat, 
or whether that's using microbial fermentation to grow mycelium, mm -hmm. um, i.e. mushroom, uh, to which has the characteristics of white fish and shrimp and other things. So, as I said, the the innovators out there are 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 coming up with entirely new ingredients, uh, new new ways of doing things, which is bringing, you know, really interesting opportunities um, for protein production in meat, seafood, and dairy. Um, so started off at plant-based being the highest proportion, increasingly cell-based in the last year or so has been popping up. And, and by the way, this is global. So, yeah. you know, we, we're talking to companies in Africa. We're talking to companies across Asia, uh, across Europe, uh, South America. Um, it's, 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 you know, these companies, these innovators are popping up literally all over the place. Um, and, and increasingly, I would say in the last six months or so, 12 months or so, it's been fermentation based. What some of these innovators can do using sort of uh, precision fermentation is just incredible. Just incredible. Very cool. Um, quick question. So right now you are all over the place, as you said, uh, you're in Europe, you're in <laughs> mean, Asia. You mean me you're... personally? Or... Not, <laughs> no. not, not me personally. Okay, the company. <laughs> the company is a lot. It's... Um, yeah. And you're at your third fund. Uh, it's not just uh, alternative, obviously. So can you tell us a little bit more about fund number two and fund number three? Um, <laughs> and what's cooking in... Uh, in your world right now yeah sure so um fund number two is is uh is focused on uh again still focused on the food industry but um as we're engaging with different parts of the food industry uh from the kind of uh, larger food companies down um they they were telling us that they were having significant issues and were making big commitments to shareholders and the like around uh plastics water and waste mm -hmm. so it's 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 one thing to be focused on alternative protein most of the top i would say top 20 companies in the food space are recognizing that the key area of growth for them in the next 10 10 years or so is alternative protein so plant-based cell-based, fermentation-based meat, seafood, dairy. But um, they are signing up to various, you know, equivalent to accords um, around plastic reduction in their supply chain, uh, around reducing water use uh, and, uh, and their, their waste and their carbon and their carbon footprint. Um, they're holders, you know, the sort of uh, black stones of the world uh, in, in a lot of these large food companies are saying, our shareholders want you guys to be cleaner. We want you to be uh, reducing your plastic footprint. We're, we're tired, you know. You, our shareholders want you to be better corporate players, and and on top of that, you know, a lot of these food companies, these global food companies, are, um, you know, they're part of our. They live in the same communities we do. They're they're just a, they've got kids at school. They've got you know they they're living on the same planet we are. They they would like to do business in a in a you know in a way that takes into consideration those 
water, you know, plastic water waste, uh, CO2 perspectives. Uh, at least that's my going in point. Um, so the second fund is very much focused on finding and investing in companies um, that will allow us as a, as a food industry to produce great products, but have a far more sort of sustainable footprint as far as water, waste, CO2 and plastic is concerned. So that's, that's the second fund. Uh, the third fund is, is focused on rural communities in particular in the United States. So at this point, the model, it's quite a different model than, than most folks. So we've, we've sort of picked one country to start with and we do anticipate that it's possible we'll, we'll see this in other, we'll do this in other markets. But we've had, you know, centuries of food being produced by key rural communities around the world. Mm -hmm. um, and when we talk about future of food and innovation, I don't know why, but there's sort of an assumption that those traditional farmers, those traditional rural communities will somehow stop being as important as they've always been to us. And we'll end up, I don't know, producing our products in vertical farms in, in a warehouse in Brooklyn or something. And I think that's just so ridiculous. Uh, and I'm not saying we can't produce vertical farms in Brooklyn, but the thought that something like that could provide for X number of million people in the country is just sort of somewhat ludicrous. Um, we, the, 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 the farmers, the farming communities, the rural communities that we've, who have always been the, the, the people and the, uh, and the communities we've relied upon to produce mm -hmm. the food for the urban areas will continue to be the most important people in, in the food system. And so the, sec the third fund, which is called Generation Food Rural Partners, is about working with top universities on breakthrough technologies in the food industry or in the food space, food and ag. Partnering with those universities to, to take the best of their science and technology and bring you know, bring professional teams together to build new companies specifically in rural communities. So, you know, yes, we will rely upon those rural communities to provide the food we always have um, uh, in the traditional ways, but let's also try to give them access to new jobs, new comp uh, you know, create, to, to start new companies, to create new jobs in rural communities which are thinking about the next, you know, 10, 15, 20 years ways of, of developing food in a more sustainable way. Um, and that's what Generation Food is all about. It's basically bringing the best of, um, of, of us, of our kind of university minds together with business people and with the rural communities to create new businesses, which will bring the future of food uh, into those areas which have always been traditionally the the the, the you know the farmers and the producers okay. of the food that we've needed for our countries it's a it's a very sort of it's not going to be easy you know no one as far as I'm aware no one has tried to do this before um, but you know these are these are dots that need to be joined um, yes. and and it's not about sort of forgetting where you know, it's forgetting from a food perspective who's brought us to this point. It's about giving those 
communities the opportunity to continue to be the dominant and most important providers of food for us into the future. Well, I think uh, it is very needed and uh, we need to rethink more diverse and maybe uh, regenerative business models if we want to disrupt the food system and create an impact. Uh, we can't just forget about bits and pieces, uh, as you said, and we do uh, indeed need to connect all the dots. I don't, I don't know that it's a want. It's not that we want to disrupt. No, the we have system. to. exactly Uh, and it's not a and i'm the reason why i'm talking about the rural communities and so on and the farmers and so on is not because well it's because it's not a the old way is bad and the new way is good and we need to get rid of those those ways of doing things and we need to get rid of those people and we need to kind of you know like, like change everything it's about you know there are new and better and more sustainable ways of doing things let's let's have the people who we've been relying upon for so long doing, you know, producing food for us in these sort of more traditional ways. Let's see if we can work with them to, to, uh, to have them adopt some of these new technologies, these new ways of doing things. Um, and let's face it, you know, the, the, the farming community have always been the, at the cutting edge of food production. It, they've got us to where we are and, and allow us to kind of have the lifestyle that we've grown accustomed to from a consumption perspective um i'm just not sure that well i am sure it's not sustainable in the in the longer term um and and therefore if we can get in more sustainable ways let's work to let, work together with the people who are at the center of the uh, of, the, of the food system and have them be the the kind of engines of the next 100 years just like they've been for the past 100 years got it well it's uh it's a lot of stuff you're working on and i uh thank you uh for your time um one last question before i leave you um how do you think covid has impacted the sector overall yeah i i, I depends what kind of aspects you're talking about from an investment perspective um uh the investors we've been talking to have sort of divided into two parts we've got the investors who are saying oh oh my goodness covid um we're going to put our head in the sand don't bother us uh for a year or two uh you know we 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 don't have you know this is not something we can cope with we're just going to wait and see and then you've got investors who are saying um, you know, this proves this proves from a food and a food system and a supply chain perspective that change needs to happen, and we want to be part of the solution. Um, and I think that's what I would have expected. Not that anyone could ever expect COVID or anything like it, but yeah, you, you know, you get two types of people in this kind of industry. You get the people who sort of followers and a wait and see and sort of wondering where things are going and don't don't make any decisions until they sort of have everything guaranteed and then you've got folks who say hey you know we're doing this for the for certain reasons we're, we're you know we're trying to make a significant difference we're trying to make things better um uh we need to make decisions now even though we don't we don't have complete clarity about 
you know, what this means. Um, and thankfully, we've partnered with, you know, great investors. We've partnered with great food companies who, uh, who are, you know, doing things for the right reasons and are driving, driving the kind of transformation that needs to happen in the food system forward um, in response to consumer demand. So, yeah, uh, COVID has meant more investment for our companies. Um, we've, we've had, you know, we've got something like 46 companies in the portfolio focused on alternative protein right now, the first fund. And uh, I would say around 60 to 70% of those companies have received funding um, mm -hmm. during COVID. During COVID, We set out to raise a $50 million fund that was focused on alternative protein um, during COVID. And we ended up raising more money than we targeted um, during COVID. And we closed the fund um, ahead of, you know, uh, 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 to a larger amount than we anticipated during COVID. And so the investors all made these decisions to back the new protein fund and Big Idea Ventures during COVID. So would we have done double the fund? I don't know. I don't think so. Uh, maybe if COVID didn't exist. I only know what, you know, the reality of what happened during COVID. During COVID, we closed our fund more than we expected uh, and more than the target. During COVID, most of our companies have found investors uh, above and beyond us. Um, we had a company, Actual Veggies, uh, two or three days ago, closed $2.8 million from investors. I saw. Um, yeah. Congrats. Uh, uh, congrats to them. Great, yes. great team. Great, great product. Uh, I mean, you know, so... You know, some uh, we've had people write two point eight million dollar check to one of our baby small companies who are uh, growing very, very quickly. Uh, so the money's the money's certainly there um, for the right, you know, for the right team and for the right companies. So I don't, I don't personally see how COVID has has necessarily negatively impacted the investment side of alternative protein. Um, yeah. Uh, I, I obviously we saw COVID impacting supply chain in the very beginning when it started happening, when you walked into a supermarket and 60, 70% of the shelves were empty and people were running around pushing out, pushing each other out of the way for the last, you know, roll of toilet paper or whatever it was. Um, thankfully those supply chain challenges were resolved at least in the United States where I'm based. I don't know what happened in other places, but were resolved within about a month. Um, but it kind of reminds me when I think back to it that the, the, the kind of surety we have over our food system um, is, you know, we, we're potentially, I don't know if, if this, I think somebody once said this, but I think we're something like 20 mils away from revolution. Okay. So if the food system did break down completely and food stopped being on those supermarket shelves, how long would it be before people were out on the streets uh, not acting in a very civil way to each other and to their communities because we rely so heavily on the farmers and the rural communities and, and others to provide our food and get it to the supermarkets in a very sort of sure and predictable way. I hope that always continues, but I think governments need to be I need, need to have plans in place to make sure that the food system they have within their countries are secure, whatever happens in, way, uh, in terms of um, uh, supply chains 
outside of their country. So if, and I'll take Singapore as an example, if something like COVID happens again to a greater degree, what happens to, to Singapore if Malaysia and other countries in the neighborhood decide not to ship them food? Right now, you know, five, five to 10% of the food is produced domestically, 90% plus is imported. If their neighbors stop sending them food, how long will it be until the country is in a challenging situation? And I don't think it's specific to Singapore. I think all countries and all governments need to have, need to start having the plans in place to make sure that domestic production is, is, is able to meet shocks to the system because we've seen in the last 12 months, 18 months, that shocks to the system are possible and maybe our food system isn't as predictable as we always imagined. Absolutely. I don't mean to, you know, I'm not, I'm not trying to get off on a negative note here. I think, no, I, think, I mean, I, I said, agree. I, I actually, I could be much more negative uh, than you <laughs> regard. Uh, I mean, I think we need uh, a lot more equity. Uh, if we talk about the importance of farmers, I mean, to me, it's unbelievable that we still have slaves. Uh, in our food system so we can go but maybe that's we'll keep it for another day (laughs) yeah I was I I was going to say I'd like to bring it back to the fact that um, I've been surprised at how tenacious and and how we've as a as a people in in all parts of the world have managed to bring it back uh, despite the challenges we've had with COVID after over the last 12 to 18 months you know we've managed to keep the food system going uh, I just want to make sure that um, we have contingency in place and governments are thinking through um, how to leverage these new technologies, whether it's cell-based or, or, or whatever it might be, to make sure that the food security in each of the countries is, is secure. Absolutely. And if COVID taught us anything, I think it's... Uh... Shit happens. Um, happens. (laughs) And double double it down, it happens. Um, But, you know, I think it gave us a little bit of a a push. I think uh, it opened our eyes on things that we needed to fix. Um, And hopefully we will do just that, you know. Um, I think it's, uh, I can see the impact here, digitalization. Um, I don't think we could have done what we did in this year in 10 months, in 10 years, if uh, we didn't have COVID because things would be just right. So um, we can take it, we can take the positive and not just the negative. That's what I meant. Yeah. The great thing is that, that a lot of people are coming together to, to work on these things. And it's not just people who want the world to be, you know, there are different motivations for people being involved in this this kind of transformative food system. Um, Some of it is about making the world a better place, sustainability, animal welfare, all of the kind of positives we've already discussed. But this is such a transformative time in in an industry um, that um, there's also a lot of, uh, but, you know, when there's a lot of change and transformation, there's a lot of opportunity for wealth creation. So even if you're not, you know, a person interested in from a financial perspective or from a career perspective, interested in, you know, sustainability or animal welfare or making the world a better place or any of those things, 
there is a significant opportunity for wealth creation as well. So you know, whatever your rationale is for doing business or for being involved in, you know, in a company or, or an investment or whatever, this is also one of the most transformative times in food history and therefore an opportunity for significant wealth creation and redistribution. So, you know, even if you're not in it to change the world, you can be in it to make a lot of money. They're not exclusive. What I'm I saying know is, we, you know, we're back, we're, we're, we're back in companies that are going to be global. And if they're global, they're doing the right thing. They're making the world a better place. But if they're global, they're, ha they're, they're significant companies, um, you know, creating great things and, and creating profits. So, you know, we can have, we can have it all. Uh, we can, you know, have great companies producing a far more sustainable food system in a way that, creates you know profit and value for people no, and jobs absolutely that's a, the key point right we need to transform it and rethink it and uh, whether it's one company many um and not just plant-based it's it's to me it's very much a universal discussion you know on on many different verticals um we need, really need to redesign okay. our business models so so can I ask you a question? Sure, of course. What do you want people listening to this to do? You mean to this? Could be, like... could, yeah, li people listening to this particular podcast or people listening to any of your podcasts. What do you want people to do? It could be a big thing. It can be a little thing. It can be nothing. But what, what, what do you hope that these conversations will I get hope... people listening to do? Hmm. I really hope that these podcasts spark uh, conversations in whatever direction, uh, bring new ideas. Um, these are conversations that need discussing and putting it out there um, behind closed doors at an event is one thing, but a podcast is uh, another medium. I do believe in the power of words and ideas, as well as championing for those who are disrupting the industry today. And whether you uh, find people that agree with you or not, it will inevitably spark a conversation and bring people to push themselves on boundaries as well as inspire new methods and solutions to change things as we cannot just continue uh, in the same way as we have before. Awesome. I, I, want, people to, I want people to make choices when they go to stores even if it's as simple as what kind of eggs you're choosing and why, <laughs> you know, if you're going to go to, if you're going to be putting your hard earned money to, to buy food, you, you get a vote, you get a vote on who you're supporting and why and, and so on. So don't just sort of mindlessly go to the same products and the same parts of the store and buy the same things and just expect things to change. Uh, I would go to the different parts of the store and sort of be aware there's so much social media and there's so much sort of, you know, insight and transparency now in terms of what practices companies have in terms of where they're sourcing their ingredients from, the kind of people that manufacture the products for them, their employee, how their employees are treated, you know, how the bonuses that the CEO is getting paid. I mean, there's so much transparency and you as an, you as a consumer, we as consumers have the ability to vote with our currency, with our expenditure, with our consumption. 
So, you know, choose the companies that you want to support. Uh, and if we all do that as a group, uh, we'll, we'll get the kind of food system we deserve. Very well. I agree with that. So, my dear friend, thank you so much. I kept you absolutely enough. And um, let's touch base next week. Yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. If, if, if people want to find out more about Big Idea Ventures or me, uh, Big Idea Ventures has a website, which is bigideaventures.com. Um, and uh, we're also on LinkedIn, uh, where they can find me and, and the company. So we, we, you know, we really want to engage with entrepreneurs. We want to engage with other investors. We want to engage with food companies who are interested in innovation in the alternative protein space. So, you know, meat, seafood, dairy in particular, ingredients, technologies. Uh, love to have people just reach out and start a conversation. We don't bite. Uh, you can cut that out. We, but we don't bite. I don't know why I said you can cut that out. We do not bite. Reach out to us. Talk to us. <laughs> Perfect. We'll do. And uh, we'll make sure to, um, to post. You don't bite. I think it's perfect. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Sharon. Great All right. talking with you. Thank you for giving us this opportunity. Thank you. Want to deep dive into food innovation? Subscribe to the Food Tech Junkie series. Tune in and listen to the industry's champion whose mission is to reinvent our future by collaborating and disrupting the status quo as a way to rebalance our planet and our daily lives. For more great content, visit our website at www.edibleplanetventures.com and follow us on social media on the Edible Planet Ventures channels.